Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Arthur C. Clarke famously said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Given all of the advanced technology around us today, we should be awash in magic. In fact, what we are awash in is data and information. So much so that we wonder if it has any meaning at all. As T.S. Eliot famously said, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? But what if Eliot was wrong? What if the very existence of the information and data was our society's knowledge, a kind of intuitive database acquired from absorbing all the information that surrounds us? And as we do so, how does it change us? And are we even aware of it? Or is it like velocity and position that can't even be measured? These are just some of the mind-bending ideas put forth by my guest, Caleb Scharf, in his new book, The Ascent of Information. Caleb Scharf is the director of Columbia University's Astrobiology Center. He is the award-winning author of The Zoomable Universe, The Copernicus Complex, and Gravity's Engines. He has written for numerous other publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Caleb Scharf back to this program to talk about The Ascent of Information books, bits, genes, machines, and life's unending algorithm. Caleb, thanks for joining us once again. Oh, my pleasure. It's so nice to be back here. Well, it's great to have you here. You know, we talk about data today, and, and I guess two areas mostly, one in terms of, of privacy and also in terms of AI. But yet, there, as you talk about in the ascent of information, there's a much broader way in which we should be thinking about it. Talk about that. Yeah, so, uh, the, you know, the idea behind everything in the book is this big picture examination of what we really are as a species. And one of the things that, that started me on this, this road was the observation that as a species, we do something kind of unique in, in that we generate and use and propagate all of this information that is not encoded in our DNA. It's not built into our genes, and yet it travels through time with us. And we do it in language, we do it in symbolic representation, we do it in books and you know, flash drives and cloud servers and all the structures that we build to support all of that. And we've been doing this pretty much since ever, you know, since the first cave painting, since the first language, since the first construction of, of tools. And you know, that seems to be a vital part of what we are, but we haven't really examined it as a thing, as something that coexists with us. And in writing the book, I drew together many different scientific threads to come to the conclusion that actually there's a way to rethink what we are that may be really important. And that is that it's not just humans, it's humans plus this external information that I call the data-ohm, kind of like the genome or the microbiome, that there's this other thing that's kind of like a living system, but it's just built very differently, that coexists with us. It's in a symbiotic relationship with us. We can't live without it, and it can't live without us. And that's a very different way, I think, of looking at what we are. And if we know what we are, then maybe we have a better shot at making the right kind of decisions in the future. How is that different from language itself? Is, it, is the data and all that information just another kind of language that we process? I mean, I think it is at some level. It has a basis in our language, right? We have languages, you know, the transmission of information. And uh, so in that sense, yes, it's part of that. 
But I think it goes beyond because it's built into the world. You know, language can exist entirely temporarily in our minds as, as electrochemical signatures and, and little you know, dendrite connections in our neurons. Whereas the data ohm is, includes that, but it also includes all the restructuring of matter and energy that takes place in the world around us in service of that information that we have. So language is absolutely a part of it, but in the end, it's a snippet of it. So I think, you know, for example, you wouldn't call a database of train timetables across the United States part of language necessarily, but it's clearly information. And it's information that we sort of build into the world because information has to live in something. It has to be constructed out of matter. It has to be um, utilized using energy and, and so on. So language is part of our interface with not just each other, but also with this informational world. And but that informational world extends far beyond. Talk about the energy component of it in terms of, of the way in which the, the information and the data is tied to how we connect and use energy. Yeah, and I think this is to a large extent, always been true. Anytime you build anything in the world, you have to utilize energy and, and resources. But it's really vivid today when we have electronic media and we have our, our hard drives and our flash drives and our computer servers and our data storage facilities and so on, because we can quantify really exactly how much energy it takes to sustain all of that. And it's actually pretty horrifying and shocking how much uh, energy goes into that. And, you know, the amount of data that we produce as a species is growing exponentially. So to give you a, a, a number for that, so roughly speaking, every year we generate something of the order of 2,000 exabytes of data. Now, you know, exabyte doesn't necessarily mean anything to any of us. It's, you know, it's like a million terabytes. Um, but to put that in a context, that means that every single day we're generating more data than is represented by every word ever spoken by every human being who has ever lived over the last 200,000 years. If you think about all of the human conversations, um, we actually produce more or we, we generate and store more data than that every single day. And you can't do that for nothing. It's not free. We have to build uh, equipment to hold that information. We have to have electrical power to push the electrons around to, to um, move that information and to store it. And so by some estimates on the present trajectory, by 2040 or thereabouts, the amount of electrical power alone required to sustain uh, information generation and storage will be the same as the total amount of electrical power that we generate as a species today for everything. So that's kind of a crisis, potentially. And the interesting question is whether we can become more efficient. Our, our computing devices definitely become more efficient as years go by. But we may also have to end up producing a lot more raw power just to support this 
informational world that is accelerating around us. And that doesn't even include, or maybe it does, mining crypto, which is the big energy suck today. Right. And that, that yeah, that's a sort of unexpected innovation, if you will, that has popped out of the, this data ohm. And yeah, it's incredibly energy intensive. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see people like Elon Musk say that, well, we're not going to really use Bitcoin until they figure out the energy use. Uh, your cryptocurrency is incredibly time-consuming, computing-consuming enterprise to construct these sort of data packages that are immune for, from tampering. It takes a huge amount of uh, computation, therefore a huge amount of energy to do that. So actually, you know, we don't want to all suddenly turn to cryptocurrency because we probably bring the world to its knees in terms of um, energy requirements. What is the nexus between all of this and artificial intelligence, which is really, in a way, about data and about the way in which data is is used and, and reused? Yeah, so AI as we have it today, or rather machine learning, uh, is indeed, yeah, it's all about data. And it's all about you know, either replicating certain cognitive abilities that we have for tasks that we may not want to do as human beings because we think we have better things to do. But it's also about um, you know, utilizing information in the world around us, you know, big data, trawling through that. Machine learning and AI are very good at finding subtle correlations in data that may point to new rules for how the world works, for either commercial interests or even interests in medicine and, and actually science itself. Uh, but, you know, so AI are also uh, an interesting innovation that have sprung out of this data ohm. And what's particularly interesting is that, you know, current AI machine learning has some basis in biological brains. We use so-called artificial neural networks, which are their software constructs, but they're modeled after the interconnection of things like neurons. And so there's an interesting melding of information from the biological world with information that exists outside of the biological world to create AI and machine learning algorithms that sort of straddle the divide. But having said that, I would place them firmly in the data ohm. And none of them are close to us yet. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that gap shrinks in the future. Talk about it from an evolutionary perspective, both from, from a forward-looking perspective and also looking backwards with respect to how we got here with this. Yeah, so if we are not just humans, but humans plus data ohm, then that has things to tell us about what our future trajectory is going to be. It suggests that if we're in this symbiotic balance with this external information, you know, it will swing back and forth around some equilibrium. The interests of the two parties are not necessarily aligned. And so there may be periods, and we may be experiencing one of those periods right now, where the interests of one, like the datome, are being seen to more than our interests. <laughs> so all of this expenditure of energy uh, is changing our planetary environment in a way that is clearly detrimental to our biological forms. From the point of view of the data ohm, it's all good. It's, it's happy to grow and to extend itself. So the interesting future trajectory is whether that imbalance remains or whether we drift back to something more balanced, where our interests 
get you know, better taken into account. And that's something we may actually have influence over. But you mentioned looking back into the past, and I think one of the, the conclusions that I come to in the book and in thinking about this is that actually you know, the really extraordinary step happened 200,000 years ago. I mean, sometimes futurists like to talk about transcendence or the singularity you know, in, our, in our future where either we upload ourselves or into machines or the machines take over. And I would actually argue that that's sort of missing the point that actually transcendence of a, of a sort happened already. And we're within the consequences of that. We're still living out the consequences. It happened you know, roughly 200,000 years ago when Homo sapiens emerged as a distinct species and began really using language in a more sophisticated way than before, began you know, making paintings on cave walls, began developing culture, began building tools, uh, with a sophistication not really seen before on Earth. That was a pivotal moment in the history of life on Earth. We've kind of been living inside that ever since, and in a sense, living inside an origin event. And the origin is the origin of the data home. It's kind of alternate living system here on Earth. It's not built the same way as us. It requires us, but it is also fundamentally different. How do we think about it, though, in the, the broader context, you say a living system here on Earth, and yet places on Earth are all dealing with this in different amounts, in different ways, at different times. And, and, and how does that relate to the, to the whole idea? Because it's not the same for everyone, obviously. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I think it's something we often forget here in the West. Uh, you know, roughly half of human population, some 3.8 billion people, do not have access to good internet connections. Right? They don't have broadband internet. And that limits and constrains their interaction with this, this data home. And equally, something like 20% of adult humans around the planet are functionally illiterate, which also limits their interaction with this, this data home. So in that sense, yeah, you know, the Earth is it's a varied landscape, and there's a varied landscape in the human population, and there's also going to be a varied landscape in this this data home. Its ability to exert itself and influence certain parts of our planet will be different. So in places where there's less technology, where there's less internet access, the data home will have to behave slightly differently. That branch of it will be evolving slightly differently, which kind of makes sense in a Darwinian point of view that you know, the environment plays a big role in dictating, the, if not the major role in dictating the, the future evolution of organisms. So the data home, it's, it's a living system. It's not necessarily a single organism. It, in some ways, it's almost an ecosystem. It's its own ecosystem. And that will have different behaviors in different places in the world and in different uh, societies and, and cultures. What that really means is hard to say. Uh, sometimes that could be beneficial to not be as engaged with the data <laughs> as many of us are in the West, right? We've all had the experience of feeling controlled by our apps and our social media. It's like, oh, I must respond to that. I must, you know, post a picture. I must, you know, you know tap the like button. Um, that's not happening to everyone. And that may be a good thing that there are people for whom this engagement is different. It looks like it's detrimental superficially, but it may actually not be long-term. 
you talk about it as its own ecosystem, and yet the that ecosystem doesn't exist or or does. It's really a question without interacting with human beings. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, you know so a good parallel to this is the the human microbiome something we've learned about in, in recent decades, the fact that you know, we, are, we consist of our cells, but we also consist of at least as many cells of things like bacteria, single-celled organisms. And we cannot exist without that microbiome. It does things for us, for our immune system, for our digestive capabilities that, that we cannot. So already, humans are not quite what we thought we were. Um, and equally, the, the microbiome can't exist without us. We are the environment for it. And I think with the, the, the data ohm, you know, there's also this, this issue that it, it relies on us to channel certain things. Yeah, we serve certain purposes for the data ohm. They're actually kind of very much like deep biological purposes. So reproduction, for instance. So a piece of information typically can't get up and reproduce itself but it can if it channels itself through us. Right? I can read a letter and I can copy that letter by hand or on a computer. And so we're sort of an integral part of the function of that alternate living system. And we're so integral that we may not be able to extricate ourselves ever from it. And, and similarly for the data ohm, it may not be able to ever extricate itself from us. How does it change us though? Well, I think it changes us in, you know, well, for, to some extent, I don't think we could be humans without this. I think, you know, we, we can't really imagine you know, removing that from us and still being human in the way that we think we're, we're human. But the data, um, you know, it changes us because it does influence us. It does exert its, its needs upon us. Um, and that you know, whether we're engaged in helping it reproduce parts of itself or just adding to it. We're a conduit for all that it, it, it requires of us. And so in that sense, there's, there are going to be subtle or not so subtle selection pressures on us as a species that drive us in certain directions. Um, this is beyond just us as individuals, although it clearly can influence us as individuals. And again, we think of social media and our engagement with that. Um, but as a species, it may be too early to see exactly where it's pushing us. Uh, but I would, I would suggest that it's, it's definitely exerting change on us as a species. I mean, the other part of it is that it operates, and our relationship to it operates at two entirely different speeds. That, that evolution is this slow, painful process. And yet this biome, this, this dataome, is moving at a rat, changing at such a rapid pace, and our relationship to it continues to change. I think that's true to some extent, but I think it's also true that the more we've studied biological evolution, the more we've recognized that actually, you know, evolution happens at a multitude of timescales. I think the, the big picture and traditional picture is very much, as you said, that, you know, these are gradual changes, you know, it's, it's small modifications over time give rise to dramatic differences after a lot of time. But what we've learned is that actually you know, those kinds of evolutionary changes are happening at a multitude of timescales. They can be happening minute by minute in things like bacteria or viruses. Um, and, even, and even in organisms like us, 
you know, season by season, there can be quite dramatic shifts in the makeup of a given population of animals or plants or whatever. So, you know, in that sense, the data ohm may not be as different as it first appears in terms of the time scale uh, over which it's it's changing and, and altering the world around it. Talk about why you would argue or how you would argue that this is really important for us to understand and its broader significance. Yeah, so I think most of us at some point or the other have been concerned about the future. <laughs> as individuals and as a species, we look around and we ask, you know, we should probably change certain things in how we behave and how we operate as, as a civilization, uh, whether it's to do with planetary sustainability or other aspects of our existence. And I would argue that, you know, to really respond properly to that, that desire, you have to know what you are. And if you don't know exactly what you are, or if you think you know what you are, but you're wrong, you're not going to make the right choices. So part of what I try to get to in the book is the argument that we aren't what we thought we were. We are humans plus data ohm. We are humans plus information. And unless we recognize that, then the kind of choices and decisions we make to try to improve our future may go wrong because we're not taking the whole picture into account. It's like finding the right therapy. You know, you, 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 to get the right therapy, you have to kind of know what you are. And if you don't recognize what you are, it's going to be very difficult to get the right therapy. And I, I feel that's the situation we're in. And, and in many ways, it's more important to understand this than it is to think about living on Mars or, or UFOs that are out there. <laughs> Yeah, in, in many respects, absolutely. Uh, you know, and you know, you mentioned Mars, and obviously, I work in astrobiology. And the extraordinary thing is, we we have all these efforts to understand the universe around us. But in the end, it all comes back to understanding ourselves. It all comes back to the context that we find ourselves in, and and figuring out what we really are. And until we find out what we really are then yes, it's going to be really, really difficult. And it doesn't matter if we go and set up a camp on Mars or somewhere else, if we're still clueless about what it is that we really are and how we really function in the world. The other aspects of it, whether it's people thinking that there's aliens out there or, or, or dreaming about going, settling colonies on Mars, is that it has this, this strange science fiction, um, magical appeal to people. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, a lot of this feels like it strays into science fiction, right? How much is that a problem in terms of the work that you do in the, in the broader context that people, the public tends to think about this through that lens of science fiction and what people have grown up thinking about, even if it is disconnected from the realities that that you talk about. Right. Well, it's it's a double-edged sword. You know, science fiction and, and our sort of fantasies about the nature of reality and the world beyond the Earth, um, you know, can be very useful, right? It can encourage an interest in actually getting at real answers to questions of whether we're alone and what other life in the universe might look like. But I think, you know, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. The, the other side to that is in some ways, curiously enough, it can limit our imaginations. 
And especially, you know, if we're used to watching Hollywood movies about aliens or fantastical exploration of the universe. You know, they're great and they're incredibly imaginative, but they also limit it. And the truth is, what's out there could be truly extraordinary and very difficult to imagine. And there's a danger that we won't spot it if we're too constrained by our own sort of little parochial fantasies about what might be out there. So I feel that it's you, there's a balancing act that one has to um, perform. And I do that in my science and many of my colleagues as well, where we're fully aware of the, the sort of science fiction and fantasy picture of things. And it's very influential and it can be useful. It can raise questions and ideas that you otherwise wouldn't stumble into. But you have to be really mindful that even that, might be too limited and too limiting. Caleb Scharf, his book is The Ascent of Information, Books, Bits, Genes, Machines, and Life's Unending Algorithms. Caleb, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.